Chapter Seven of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Seven: A Mad Prophet. A violent man, pallid and perspiring, with crazy dark eyes and a voice hoarse from the effort to make himself heard above the noise of a hymn-singing group a few yards to the right, and of a brazen-throated atheist on the left, was delivering his soul of his message to mankind a confused, disconnected, oft-delivered message, so inconsequent as to suggest that it had been worn into shreds and tatters of catchphrases by a process of over-delivery, yet uttered with the passion of one inspired with a new and amazing gospel. "'I speak it to you, the working men, the proletariat, the downtrodden slaves of the plutocracy, the creators in darkness of the wealth that the idlers enjoy in dazzling halls of brightness.' I do not address the bourgeoisie rotting in sloth and apathy. They are the parasites of the rich. They sweat the workers in order to pander to the vices of the rich. They despise the poor and grovel before the rich. They shrink from touching the poor man's hand, but they offer their bodies slavishly to the kick of the rich man's foot. It is not in their hand, but in the oars, brother toilers and brother sufferers, that lies the glorious work of the great social revolution, whose sun just rising is tipping the mountain tops with its radiant promise of an immortal day. It is against them, and not with them, that you have to struggle. In that day of Armageddon you will find all tailordom, all grossedom, all apothecarydom, all attorneydom, arrayed in serried ranks around the accursed standards of plutocracy, of aristocracy, of bureaucracy. Beware of them. Have naught to do with them on peril of your salvation. The great social revolution will come not from above, but from below, from the depths. De profundis clamavi. From the depths have I cried, O Lord. He paused, wiped his forehead, cleared his throat, and went on in the same strain, indifferent to ribald interjections and the Sunday apathy of his casual audience. The mere size of the crowd he was addressing seemed to satisfy him. The number was above the average. A few working men in the inner ring drank in the wild utterances with pathetic thirst. The majority listened, half amused, half attracted by the personality of the speaker. A great many were captivated by the sonority of the words, the unfaltering roll of the sentences, the vague associations and impressions called up by the successive images. It is astonishing what little account our sociological writers take of the elementary nature of the minds of the masses. How easily they are amused, how readily they are imposed upon, how little they are capable of analytical thought, at the same time how intellectually vain they are, which is their undoing. The ineptitudes of the music hall which make the judicious grieve, the satirical presentment, for instance, of the modern fop, which does not contain one single salient characteristic of the type, which is the blatant convention of fifty years back, are greeted with roars of unintelligent laughter. Books are written, vulgar, fallacious, with a specious semblance of philosophical profundity, and sell by the hundred thousand. The masses read them without thought, without even common intelligence. It is too great an intellectual effort to grasp the ideas so disingenuously presented, but the readers can understand just enough to perceive vaguely that they are in touch with the deeper questions of philosophy, and, through sheer vanity, delude themselves into the belief that they are vastly superior people in being able to find pleasure in literature of such high quality. And the word Mesopotamia is still blessed in their ears. 
Nothing but considerations such as these can explain the popularity of some of the well-known Sunday orators in Hyde Park. The conductors of the various properly organised mission services belong naturally to a different category. It is the socialist, the revivalist, the atheist, the man whose blood and breath seem to have turned into inexhaustible verbiage that present the problem. Some such reflections forced themselves into the not uncharitable mind of Jimmy as he stood on the outer fringe of the pallid man's audience and listened wonderingly to the inspired nonsense. He had left a delighted Aline to be taken by Colonel Pawley to the zoological gardens, and had strolled down from Brownson Square to the north side of the park. To lounge pleasantly on a Sunday afternoon from group to group had always been a favourite Sunday pastime, and the pallid man was a familiar figure. Jimmy had often thought of painting him as the central character of some historical picture, an expectorated Jonah crying to Nineveh, or a flagellant in the time of the plague, with foaming mouth and bleeding body, calling upon the stricken city to repent. His artist's vision could see the hairy, haggard, muscular anatomy beneath the man's rusty black garments. He could make a capital picture out of him. The man paused only for a few seconds, and again took up his parable, the battle of the poor and the rich. The flow of words poured forth, platitude on platitude, in turbid flood, sound and fury signifying elusively sometimes the collectivist doctrine, at others the mere sans culotte hatred of the aristocrat. Jimmy, speculating on the impression made by the oratory on the minds of the audience, moved slightly apart from the crowd. His glance wandering away took in Morland on his way home, walking sedately on the path towards the marble arch. He ran across the few yards of intervening space and accosted his friend gaily. "'Come and have a lesson in public speaking, and at the same time hear the other side of the political question.' "'What? Go and stand among that rabble?' cried Morland, aghast. "'You'll have to stand among worse, so you'd better get used to it. Besides, the man is a delightful fellow, with a face like Habakkuk, capable of everything. To hear him, one would think he were erupting red-hot lava, whereas really it is molten omelette. Come, your purple and fine linen will be a red rag to him.' Laughing, he dragged the protesting Morland within earshot of the speaker. Morland listened superciliously for a few moments. "'What possible amusement can you find in this drivel?' he asked. "'It is so devilish pathetic,' said Jimmy, "'so human. The infinite aspiration and the futile accomplishment. Listen!' The hymn next door had ceased. The atheist was hunting up a reference, and the words of the pallid band's peroration resounded startlingly in the temporary silence. In that day, when the sovereign people's will is law, when the weakest and the strongest shall share alike in the plenteous bounty of providence, no longer shall the poor be mangled beneath the juggernaut car of wealth, no longer shall your daughters be bound to the rich man's chariot wheels, and world shrieking into an infamy worse than death, no longer shall the poor man's soul burn with hell-fire at the rich man's desecration of the once pure woman that he loves, no more rottenness, foulness, stench, iniquity, but the earth shall rest in purity, securely folded in the angel wings of peace. He waved his arms in a gesture of dismissal, turned his back on the crowd, and sat down, exhausted, on the little wooden bench that had been his platform. The crowd gradually moved away, some laughing idly, others reflectively chewing the cud of their barmicide meal. Morland pointed a gold-mounted cane at the late speaker. "'Who and what is this particular brand of damned fool?' 
Jimmy checked with a glance a working man who had issued from the inner ring and was passing by, and translated Morland's question into sober English. "'Him?' replied the working man. "'It's Daniel Stone, sir. Some people say he's cracked, but he's always has something good to say, and I like listening to him.' "'What does he do when he isn't talking?' asked Jimmy. "'Snatches a nap and a mouthful of food, I should say, sir,' said the man with a laugh. He caught Jimmy's responsive smile, touched his cap, like the downtrodden slave that he was, and went on his way. Jimmy glanced round for Morland and saw him striding off rapidly. He ran after him. "'What's the hurry?' "'That damned man!' "'Which? The one I was talking to?' "'You surely didn't object?' "'Of course not. The other, Daniel Stone.' "'Well, what of him?' "'He's a dangerous lunatic. I have heard of him. "'Why the devil did you want me to make an exhibition of myself amongst this scum?' "'Jimmy stared. Morland broke into a laugh and held out his hand. "'Oh, never mind. The beast got on my nerves with his chariot wheels and his desecration of maidens and the rest of it. "'I must be off. Good-bye.' "'Jimmy watched him disappear through the gate and turned back towards the groups. "'The padded man was still sitting on his bench.' A few children hung round and scanned him idly. Presently he rose and tucked his bench under his arm, and walked slowly away from the scene of his oratory. His burning eyes fixed themselves on Jimmy as he passed by. Jimmy accosted him. "'I've been greatly interested in your address. I saw you with another of the enemies of mankind. You are a gentleman, I suppose?' Oh, "'I hope so,' said Jimmy, smiling. "'Then I have nothing to do with you.' retorted the man with an angry gesture. "'I hate you and all your class.' "'But what have we done to you?' "'You've turned my blood into gall and my soul into consuming fire.' "'Let us get out of the dust and sit down under a tree and talk it over. We may get to understand each other.' "'I have no wish to understand you,' said the man coldly. "'Good day to you.' "'Good day,' said Jimmy with a smile. "'I'm sorry you will not let us be better acquainted.' he turned to the next group, who were listening to a disproof of God's existence. But the atheist was a commonplace thunderer in a bowler hat, whose utterances fell tame on Jimmy's ears after those of the haggard-eyed prophet. He wandered away from the crowd, striking diagonally across the park, and when he found comparative shade and solitude, cast himself on the grass beneath a tree. The personality of Daniel Stone interested him. He began to speculate on his daily life, his history. Why should he have vowed undying hatred against his social superiors? He reminded Jimmy of a character in fiction, and after some groping the association was recalled. It was the monk in Duma, the son of Miladi. He wove an idle romance about the man. Perhaps Stone was the disinherited of noble blood, thirsting for a senseless vengeance. Gradually the drowsiness of deep June fell upon him. He went fast asleep and when he awoke half an hour afterwards and began to walk homewards, he thought no more of Daniel Stone. But on following Sunday afternoons he frequently stood for a while to listen to the man. It was always the same tale, sound and fury signifying nothing. On one occasion he caught Jimmy's eye and denounced him vehemently as an enemy of society. After that, Jimmy, who was of a peaceful disposition, ceased attending his lectures. He sympathised with Morland. End of chapter 7